All right, let's go ahead and uh, pray and then we will get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for yet another day in which we are able to gather together, Lord. But we are also aware that there are many missing, many who are sick, many who are separate from the body uh, in presence, Lord. And so we lift them up to you, asking that your spirit would be with them. We think of the children, we think of the adults who are suffering in the frailty of their human body, Lord. And we ask that you would be merciful and gracious unto them, uh, that you would allow them to bear up under these things to the glory of your name, uh, and that these things would be ultimately for their sanctification. Uh, Father, we ask um, especially that you be with us now as we continue to walk through uh, the narrative, the storyline of your coming in the flesh Uh, We ask, Lord, that you would instruct us and teach us, and may this be a great time of reflection, contemplation, meditation on uh, you being manifested in the flesh. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we will continue our walk through the New Testament storyline, but before uh, we move on to, you know, kind of proceeding along those lines, I did want to just do a brief review um, of what we looked at last week, uh, just kind of to set our minds, as it were, on what we're looking at, to kind of get us in that frame of mind. If you remember, I didn't want to move through this so much from a doctrinal perspective right now, um, but more from just looking at th- this this event and, and the, the coming to this event didn't happen in a bubble, right? These are real people who had lives and had their lives broken in upon by God. And um, we can learn a lot from seeing their response and seeing how the Lord worked, um, even as we'll consider, how did they get to Bethlehem? What were the means that the Lord used to get them to Bethlehem in order to fulfill that prophecy? Um, These are things that sometimes get overlooked, I think, when we quickly kind of just read through the narrative and uh, so forth. So last week, um, right, we looked at John's... um, we looked at John's, uh, you know, divine genealogy of Christ, um, right? Specifically, identifying the Word, right? He identified the Word as divine, right? He said the Word was God, and he identified the Word as distinct. That the Word is a distinct person within the Godhead, and he certainly identified the Word as preexistent, as the preexistent Creator. Um, we also then looked at the fact of the genealogies, um, Matthew and Luke's account of his human genealogy. He most certainly was, uh, was God come down, but he also had a human line, uh, in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Uh, we see that Matthew in his writing to Hebrews, Uh, sought to present Christ really as the covenant fulfiller. That is why he starts with Abraham and David and shows that the promises made to Abraham and the covenant established with David and so forth was fulfilled in this one person. Uh, We essentially see that really all of the Old Testament types and shadows and prophecies uh, were fulfilled in this one. Uh, They were embodied in him. Uh, we then looked at, as we moved more into the narrative, we looked at just uh, the, the city in which he was uh, 
conceived, as well as the state of the one in who he was conceived, um, specifically conceived within Nazareth. And we looked at the fact that that city was not a prominent city. It was really just kind of a throwaway city, if you will, a city that was known for its sin. Um, And he came to one in that city who herself was poor, who herself was really of no repute, and she was betrothed. Does anybody remember what it was to be betrothed? Is it like our engagements today? No. That's right. Our engagements today are like, you know, here today, gone tomorrow in some sense, unfortunately. Back then, it was more of a uh, serious <laughs> commitment. It was as if they were married. It was in the sense that she was legally bound to the man upon that first process of betrothal. Uh, and it was generally, you know, six, nine, 12 months later in which that final process of becoming husband and wife was completed. The consummation. Right the, right, the consummation of the marriage. And what is interesting here is this is something that is very key to the story because whenever that announcement is made to Mary, this has significant ramifications for her. It's not just, oh, hey, okay, sweet, we're having a kid, right? <laughs> this is truly has ramifications because she's not married. And as we will find, they were not living together. And Joseph didn't know about it right away until she came back from visiting Elizabeth, which was three months later. So there's a lot of like, well, what's going on? Imagine being Joseph and hearing that. Some of those things we will consider. Um, We then looked at the state of Mary, right? The, The Greek actually describes her as richly blessed, and we should take it no further than that. We looked at the fact that the Catholic Church um, and even like Eastern Orthodox Church uh, want to um, highlight and, and as, as if she was a bestower of grace. We all know, right? Hail Mary, thou art full of grace, as if it were something within her that she had of herself. Uh, but that is uh, no way in which the scriptures speak of her. Um, she is a recipient of grace just as we all are. Um, she was not a bestower of it, but she was just one the Lord used at that time for his purposes. He wasn't a source of grace. That's right. Unfortunately, that's, you know, they, uh, the Catholic Church and, and Eastern Orthodox, they want to make much of her in, in many ways. And we'll even get into a little bit more of how they do that in the passages we look at today. But in many ways, it's like they, they raise her up to divinity. To the point, if you look at, like, we won't get into this, but the Immaculate Conception, yeah. uh, that idea that she was always without sin and kept from sin is nowhere to be found in Scripture. Um, but we certainly see that, we know that Christ was without sin by the very nature of being conceived by the Holy Spirit and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. Um, we don't need to conjure up some way that Christ would remain without sin because Mary was something. Um, mm-hmm. So today, the plan is to continue walking through. We'll start with where we left off in Luke chapter 1. I do want to start at verse uh, 30, even though we touched on it briefly last week, just to kind of set the context specifically for Mary's question. Um, uh, And then my hope is, we'll see how it goes. I may end up skipping some stuff to get us to at least the reading of and a brief contemplation of the birth of Christ. Um, I expect we'll have one more week after this that we'll get into some of the various aspects of this birth, namely the humility of Christ, um, the necessity of the virgin birth, let's say, things like that that we'll get into next week. 
Um, and then hopefully half the week on that, half the week on his incarnational mission. So we'll, we'll uh, get into those details. Is there somebody that would like to read verses 30 through 33 in Luke chapter 1? Sure. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And so what we looked at as we just kind of contemplated this last week was the fact that this wasn't just any child being born. This was the child and we that, that, that would fulfill all of those Old Testament promises. Specifically, we see that in the language of, you know, having the throne of his father David, reigning over the house of Jacob, and the eternality of his reign, that it will have no end. Uh, that had been said of nobody else except Christ, um, that his reign would have no end. Um, but while we know that, Luke is not explicitly implying that like Matthew does. It's more implicitly based on what we see in Scripture. Um, but to this announcement, Mary asks a very genuine question. Unfortunately, what would seem straightforward to us, others have twisted. Does anybody know kind of the background as to this question as to how specifically even the Roman Catholic Church looks at this question? Seems pretty straightforward, right? Like, how can this be since I am a virgin? The Roman Catholic Church uses this verse um, to uh, refer to the perpetual virginity of Mary. They say that ultimately what is happening here is that Mary, because she has made a lifelong vow of of virginity and, and remaining a virgin, that she's saying, how can this be because I've made this vow? And what they actually say is that um, unless the question is understood this way, then the question wouldn't make sense. Um, ultimately, I say that really what doesn't make sense is their conclusion, right? Um, because if we look at the fact that what we're dealing with here is a teenager who is a virgin, uh, it would make sense. She's thinking, I'm a virgin. How can I possibly be with child, right? Uh, there's nothing more that needs to be read into that. Like, this is a real-life circumstance. She's saying, I know I'm betrothed, but I've never been intimate with the one whom I'm betrothed to. As a matter of fact, I've never been intimate in that way with anybody. How can it possibly be uh, that I would be with a child? And so this question has nothing to do with some lifelong vow to celibacy. In fact, this question has nothing to do with doubt or disbelief, like Zechariah's question in Luke chapter 1, right? His question is, like, how shall, like, how shall I know this will happen? Um, she's simply just saying, look, I understand the procreation process. I understand how it works. How can this be? Um, that generally conception requires a man and woman coming together. But outside of this basic logic, um, even in the Greek construct of this, this verse, what we find is there's no reference to the word virgin. Parthenos is not used. What is used is gnosko. Um, and that simply means, like, I know. And so what is being conveyed in this sentence is how can this be since I have not known a man or I am because it's actually in the present tense which is key I am not knowing a man I am not presently knowing a man right 
And this present tense, I think, is key because if she wanted to express a future virginity, a perpetual virginity, there would have been some aspect in which that would have been conveyed with future tenses. How can this be since I will be a virgin? Right. Quite simply. Like, that's not what's used. It's or, speaking presently. Or never know a man. Right. Like there would be something like that. And is that how they also justify that the priest should also be that way? Yeah, as far as... Is there something weird? Yeah, I mean... Yeah, the vow vow of celibacy, that came long after to basically show more purity, more holiness in regards to the Pope. (laughs) But as far as I know, it didn't have anything to do with the Virgin Mary. Right, so at the end of the day, like we just have another example in which like the contextual meaning is hijacked to be twisted and like you know, presented in a way as if Mary was something other than just a mere person like all of us being used by God. Um, but how is it this, that this will happen? We are told that in verse 35, um, we read, The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So how are we to understand uh, this language of the Holy Spirit coming upon her, the Holy Spirit overshadowing her? What do you guys think? I thought Mormons understand it. Yeah, it has no sexual connotation whatsoever, right? Um, That is just obviously in the human flesh thinking as if that's the only way that God can work uh, and so forth. So how are we to understand that language? So the way that I... Try to explain it sometimes the, the supernatural power of the spirit to bring about the the egg as well as the seed needed yeah. to fertilize the egg. That that's all done supernaturally, no intervention of human or mankind whatsoever, other than Mary bearing the the child. Right, and I think like what we ultimately see is we see this very thing in creation. And the creation of man, right? Out of dust, mm-hmm. he created man and breathed into him the breath of life. The Holy Spirit is truly a life-giving agent. And when we think of uh, the language of, of, of coming upon her and overshadowing her, if we actually look in Scripture at the words that would be conveyed as overshadowing, we see it in a couple different places. Uh, for example, in the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory resting on the tabernacle. Uh, we see it with the cloud watching over and hovering over and protecting the Israelites. That same idea of overshadowing. In regards to the transfiguration, you have the cloud coming upon them and overshadowing them in that sense. And so simply the language of coming upon her and overshadowing her simply refer- refers to like the power and presence of God. Which goes back to exactly what you said. It was simply the power of God in the womb of Mary by which she conceived supernaturally. It wasn't in the normal course of conception or how it normally occurs. It was the power of God creating life in many ways out of nothing in her womb. Correlates with Genesis 1-2. The Spirit was hovering over the waters of the deeps. That's right. Now, as a result of this work, as a result of this work, um, we see that this child, this holy child, will be called the Son of God. 
Hey, real quick, just on what yeah. Lynn said, coming over, that's an, I guess it kind of interesting to me because like you came over the land and that started the creation of mm-hmm. earth and now coming, it says here the spirit will come upon you in the same way and yeah. create. Yeah. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. 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 Do commentators make any kind of speculation on like a chromosomal level they don't any of the ones i've read like don't get into that you know um there may be some somewhere that's maybe someone here has read but i haven't seen that level of of detail there's always a naturalistic response to the because on some levels you have to have dna from his his mom right because that was how we got the lineage of adam right well i don't necessarily think the lineage of um well i think you're talking about like the, the Ultimately, the Davidic line. Mm-hmm. The yeah, Davidic yeah. line would have come through the fact that Joseph was his adoptive father. Mm-hmm. There are some that would say that it's, there's a chance that Mary was from the line of David as well. Mm-hmm. They talk about Leverite marriage, and that's what you kind of see then maybe potentially presented in Luke's genealogy uh, and so forth. But at a, at, for sure, Scripture always presents Christ as coming from Joseph and so mm-hmm. forth. And that happens because Joseph is ultimately his adoptive father. And we see that adoptive father-like process, if you will, in the very fact that he named Christ. Uh, the, the, the laws at the time would have allowed that by the naming of the child that you are taking that child in a sense as your own. So, um, Now, in this language, son of God, or he shall be called the son of God, it doesn't necessarily have reference to his ontological um, nature, who he is in his very essence in the Godhead. It is simply just, that's the work of the conception and then birth. He is the son of God. Um, now, why is the why is the supernatural conception necessary? To be without sin? Mm-hmm. That's right. It's to be without uh, sin. Um, and that's what we needed. We needed someone who would would be without sin. Um, we didn't need one that was uh, like us in all ways. We needed one that was like us in all ways, in all ways without sin. And that is what the supernatural conception allowed for. Um, so it was necessary that God be his father and that he be, con- be conceived by the Holy Spirit, that he proceed from God and have no taint of sin. Not born with the sin nature. That's right. Yeah, he's fully God, fully man, in the one person, right? Um, now, Mary's response, um, we see that she wasn't, she didn't ask for a sign. How, how can I know? But one was graciously given to her. Uh, it was specifically her relative, Elizabeth, who she will then, when we get to the end of this, uh, verse 38, we see her, uh, in verse 39, go and visit. She, she hurries to go see Elizabeth. But what we do notice is Mary's response in verse 38. There we read, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord may it be done to me according to your word, and the angel departed from her. I don't know if any of you guys have seen this, but there was an article posted not too long ago, uh, a few weeks ago, about... Did you see it? Okay. This is the exact uh, statement, or at least what he put in the tweet and what is in his article he says this the virgin birth is a story about an all-knowing all-powerful deity impregnating a human teen there is no definition or of of um uh there's no definition 
that would include, uh, sorry, let me see here. I actually did not write it exactly as it says, but what he basically says is that, that this, this, actually, they, they talk about him being a Satanist. So this is just a, a guy that has vitriol towards the Lord, okay? This is not a Christian perspective, but what he is throwing out there is that Mary never consented to being impregnated by God. That is the gist of the comment, okay? And it's this type of vitriol that we see um, being um, put out there by sinners that have a hatred towards the very God who sustains their life. They speak against him in such a manner. Um, but what we see here, and I'll be very clear, Mary didn't have to give consent. We, we don't need to give approval to God for him to do anything. He doesn't need our okay, so let's be very clear on that. that let's just lay that foundation like we understand that. But nonetheless, what we do see here is Mary's humble response to the Lord. <clears throat> she says, basically, let it be done to me as you have said, according to your word. That is phenomenal. Why? Because her betrothal to Joseph, this has massive social implications. Um, she could become some type of social outcast um, as a result of this. And, and how many people are truly going to believe, like, no, 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 you don't understand. What's in me, like, is from the Holy Spirit. They're going to be like, what are you talking about? Right? Like, um, and so this has um, potentially a lasting impact for her. Um, remember, it was so closely akin to marriage, the betrothal process, that any, um, any you know, unfaithfulness would be dealt with accordingly. Listen to what Deuteronomy 22 uh, verses 23 through 24 say. Um, they, it says, If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man, so that's the language of betrothal, she's engaged to a man, and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death. Because the, gir the girl, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he has violated his neighbor's wife, thus you shall purge the evil from among you. What we see conveyed here is this idea of her, the girl's complicit willingness to have an intimate relationship with a man. This isn't the same as somebody crying out saying, no, don't do this. And she's clearly um, um, being treated in a manner that is not complicit in the act, right? Uh, this is somebody saying, like, I'm okay with this, right? Um, what does it say should happen? They should be stoned to death. That's important to understand, especially as we look at Joseph's response to Mary, um, you know, revealing that she was with child. And yet, despite these risks or these concerns and how she would be viewed, she submits to what the Lord has for her. Um, I think, you know, for ourselves, are we willing to do that? Whatever the Lord has for us, there's a, there's a hymn out there, whatever the Lord my God ordains is right. Do we have that perspective? Mary certainly did. Mary, Mary certainly said, if this is what your word is, then let it be done to me. Uh, do we have that same perspective when it comes to ourself, our wife, our children? Right? We want to relieve all of our children's sufferings, all of their difficulties. We don't want them to go through any. We'd rather go through it. And we must understand as the Lord may have otherwise. And we need to submit uh, to what he has. <laughs> so after this, right, Mary goes off uh, to visit Elizabeth. 
Um, and she gained, I think, a greater understanding of really the announcement had been made to her. We see this in what Elizabeth says to her uh, as far as who she is carrying. And then obviously in Mary's hymn of praise, she expresses great understanding of the one who is in her womb. Um, so yeah, so let's go ahead and turn over to uh, Matthew one eighteen. This narrative here, as I said last week, really presents the... Uh, the narrative from Joseph's perspective. As you will see in verse 18, it essentially um, starts in a similar amount or a similar way as Luke's ended. Um, it's, it just kind of jumps right into it, right? Uh, we read in verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Right before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And so we see the consistency, obviously, Supernatural conception, supernatural conception, no issues there, right? Um, but verse 19 provides us really with kind of like our first exposure to Joseph. Uh, we get a little insight into his character, um, and we certainly see his response as to um, finding out that his betrothed was with a child. Um, and I think that there's a lot here for us to consider um, instead of just quickly reading by it, right? First of all, what do we see? Joseph, what kind of man is he? He's a righteous man, right? Verse 19 says, And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man. Uh, this righteousness is not um, to refer to any forensic, right? Like as if he was justified before God and so forth. It really is speaking of him as a law keeper, meaning keeping the law of Moses, um, that is what he sought to do. He was one who would have sought to strictly adhere to what the law says. So he was a righteous man. Um, but what we find out as well is that he didn't want to disgrace Mary. Um, according to the law, we read in Deuteronomy, um, she should be stoned, right? Um, the, the Mishnah which is just the, essentially the compilation of like oral Jewish tradition, um, states this, um, that the woman is forbidden both to the husband and the paramour, the person she was um, intimate with. So what essentially, Joseph is aware of this. He knows that he can no longer take Mary as his wife, that she must be put away according to the law. <laughs> Um, but what we see with Joseph is that he didn't seek to bring upon Mary the full rigors of the law. He didn't seek to, to, to bring the law against her in the fullest extent, um, which is remarkable. Um, imagine she's been gone for three months. She comes back and she says, Joseph, I'm with child. Now, how would we as husbands, and even, I guess, let's say, uh, well, the men wouldn't be with child, but let's say, you know, however you ladies want to extrapolate it for yourselves. But the idea is, imagine you're uh, the one you're engaged to, um, or you're recently married, and, you know, your wife goes on some trip and comes back three months later, and she says, I'm with child. What would our response be? I guess we'll look at it this way. We Thankfully, uh, we will hopefully have that experience. <laughs> 
but kind of extrapolate it down to smaller things. Like I'm thinking for myself, the times in which uh, something happens and I become upset or I, I'm harsh or I'm impatient or, you know, there's a lack of gentleness uh, because, I don't know, I feel challenged or I feel like, you know, um, uh, disrespected, right? And so there's some aspect in which when those small things happen to us, how do we respond? Um, and yet here with Joseph, he has really the news of all news that his wife is with child. And what he appears to be more concerned about is making sure she's put away quietly, that there's no disgrace on her. He's not worried about how he's viewed and how he's looked upon in himself. There's no hint in that sense of pride, but what we really see in Joseph is meekness. Uh, if you remember whenever I taught on meekness, there were like five components, right? There was humility and gentleness, a willing to be wronged, a willing to submit to the will of the Lord, which ultimately we see Joseph does because he eventually takes Mary as his wife. Um, he was uh, more pursuing the bill of divorcement, I guess, than the stoning. Right? Yeah, he wanted to put her away, right? He yeah. knew he had to divorce her. It wasn't. There was no option here, according to the law. Yeah. Um, but he sought to do it not in accordance with. That's it. She, I need to be justified and show, like, look what she's done to me. He was concerned that she wouldn't be disgraced, which is just remarkable. Mm-hmm. I think of um, our need as husbands, in particular, um, and how we deal with our wives. How we interact with our wives. Um, I think of 1 Peter 3, 7, right? Uh, It says, You husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of grace so that your prayers will not be hindered. Um, This is what, right, I mean, all of Ephesians 5 and how we're to love our wives. Our wives most certainly are our helpmates, uh, and really, you know, they, should they do as we ask? Sure, we can say that. But I think we also have to be careful in how we deal with our wives and the types of things we ask our wives to do and the burdens we put upon our wives. We have duties as husbands. There's a reason it specifies for husbands to love their wives. Oftentimes it is easy um, for us to not show love. But we have a tendency to where we can be harsh, a tendency in which we can... Um, not be gracious, and there's a need for us to show that love to our wives. Um, and so Joseph, even though they weren't um, officially married at this point, yet gives us an example of how we ought to be. Um, uh, certainly his righteousness was to seek to put her away, but to do it quietly. It wasn't a righteousness necessarily because he, you know, he was going to be gracious towards her. He was, but his righteousness was still to put her away but to do it quietly. Um, You know, we shouldn't be concerned with making sure that we receive (laughs) or exact vengeance and things of that nature. Any comments or thoughts on that before I uh, move on? I was just thinking of, I mean, he was a godly man. Yeah. He exercised mercy. I mean, all the God, you know, characteristics of Mm. a godly person, especially in a man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I just think, like I said, I mean, there's times where even towards my wife, it's like all of a sudden I feel like I was like, you know, like you said, disrespected or whatever. It's like, not, you know, and it's and next thing you know, there's not gentleness and 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 humility and whatnot. It's like, don't you know who I am, (laughs) or you know, whatever it may be. Like, 
Um, and I think that we see a lot here in this example of truly a godly man, one who sought not to lift himself up, but was truly concerned uh, for his betrothed at that point. So verses 20 and 21, we have the angelic announcement. In a sense, uh, some form of the good news, if you will, was announced to Joseph. Good news in the sense that the one that would be in Mary is the very Son of God. He shall be called Jesus, for he'll save his people from their sins. But good news for him, too, in the sense that Mary had not been unfaithful, right? If you just think about like just the actual reality, it's like, okay, she's remained faithful. Um, she has not gone and been with anybody else. Uh, so the angelic announcement says, but when he had considered this, notice there's not a hasty jumping to the end result. Um, but there's a contemplation. He had considered it, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So what we see here, there's a few things. First, right, Joseph understands, he sees that this is ultimately God's plan. This was God's doing. He is behind this. Uh, he learns that what uh, the child that is in her is the work of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, Joseph understands that he's going to be the one that's going to name the child. And like I said, this is where he now legally would adopt uh, Christ as his own. Um, and then finally, Joseph learns that this child is going to have a special mission. Uh, the mission of this child is to come not just to be born, but ultimately to save his people from their sins. Um, he has a mission like no other. Um, right? He had a mission to fulfill all righteousness. Right? We know um, of his, uh, his baptism, him saying that, let it be done to fulfill all righteousness. We know that his mission uh, involved offering himself through the eternal spirit without blemish, Hebrews 9.14. And to become the source of eternal salvation for all who, who obey him, Hebrews 5, 9. Um, he needed, in, in some sense, like Hebrews 2 says, to be made like his brethren in all things, um, except sin, so that he could offer himself uh, as that ultimate sacrifice and thereby become the source of eternal salvation. Um, this is the very essence and purpose of his coming. We see then in Matthew uh, 123 or 22 and 23 that ultimately, uh, you know, Matthew ties this back. Remember, he's writing to Hebrews and he is trying to show Christ as the covenant fulfiller, uh, the one who all these prophecies spoke about. And so Matthew certainly just ties this into uh, the, the prophecy we see in Isaiah 7, where he says, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And it's at the end of this, right now we are told that Joseph awoke from his sleep, um, and he obeyed, just like Mary. There was no questioning, no, you know, no more pondering, no more contemplation of, well, the law says he doesn't obey the Jewish traditions. What he, who he obeys is the message from God. Uh, that he is to take Mary as his wife, which is a great show of faith, I think. He didn't stick to just 
well, the Jewish traditions say this, this, and this, and so I must do these things. But what he realizes is that he must obey God. I think that's what we really see behind the scenes, if you will, in verse 20, is that Joseph, being a righteous man, wanting to obey God, wanting to obey his law, mm. with that strong adversative, but mm. we see God's timeliness mm. in carrying out his plans. When Joseph was in the midst of that... Oh no, my betrothed wife is now pregnant. How did this happen? What? I'm gonna, I need to follow through in obedience to the law. God is there. An angel appears to him. Joseph, mm. hang on. And mm. the, just, just the care of the father, even in the midst of the turmoil, while desiring to obey his commands and his law. And I and I would I mean, just thinking about like that sensitivity to the, 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 the Lord in that sense. Do we have that same sensitivity? Yeah. When we're reading his word and we see it confronts us on particular areas of sin or, or issues and, and areas that need to be sanctified, are we willing to bend to the commands of scripture, uh, to the commands of God, and truly change those things and obey where obedience is needed? Because we certainly see in, in situations like this where you have these life-changing events for Joseph. Joseph took Mary and was his wife, but it would be known that clearly she was pregnant before they were ever together. And so there was some level of social implication for him as well. And he would, in a sense, in, in many ways, would be willing to bear that reproach, knowing that the Lord had commanded him to take her as his wife. Let's turn to Luke chapter 2. Um, this is where uh, the narrative kind of picks up, if you will. What we know is that they live in Nazareth, and the child isn't to be born in Nazareth, right? The child is to be born in Bethlehem. That's what, if you recall, what we saw in Micah chapter 5, 2, right? That from Bethlehem, one shall come forth, a ruler shall come forth, right? So how did they get there? How did they get to Bethlehem? What was the reason they had to go? Uh, would somebody like to read uh, the whole of, let's just call uh, chapter 2, 1 through uh, 5. Lena, you got that? Sure. All right. Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee from the city of Nazareth to, Ju- to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Mm. So how did they get there? Well, what we see is that uh, Caesar Augustus, in his rule and reign, <coughs> sought to bring about a census. Um, the census was not according to the general Roman practice, though. Generally, under the Roman practice, it would be like, you know, you just are assessed where you are uh, in your current location. But for whatever reason, this particular census was uh, more according to what the Jews required, whether it was to placate them and not cause issues. Because what we will see is Quirinius, or we won't necessarily see now, but um, Quirinius did a, did a census in 86, um, 86, not 86, um, that ultimately resulted in revolt um, at the way that he went about it. Um, so this, you know, it could have been to placate them, but what they basically had was that they had to go back to 
where their lineage had them. Um, and so this required uh, Joseph for sure to make the trip. If Mary was truly part of the line of David, like we discussed earlier, then she would most certainly need to make the trip for that reason. But quite simply, I think, you know, when we look at this, she made the trip um, because she was nine months pregnant and her husband at that time is now going to Bethlehem um, and uh, needed to be with him, um, quite simply. I mean, that's just the, the, the straight facts if you don't want to get into too much scholarship on it. But um, what is interesting is that these were the sovereign means the Lord used. You had somebody who did not know God, did not does not love God, decree a census at that time that ultimately the Lord used to have Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem, where ultimately we read that the time for her to give birth had arrived. It was not too soon. It was not too late. It was just the right time. And we must understand that that's how the sovereign God works. Uh, it is never too late. It is never too early. It is always the right time. Um, in which uh, things come about in our life. Um, we, we, we should not stress over, um, you know, oh, it didn't happen then, it happened that Well, it's the way the Lord allowed for those things to happen, and we should rest in that, uh, that he is over all. Uh, but this journey to Bethlehem in verses 3 through 5 that we read, if you consider just the reality, it's pretty remarkable. There are women here who have been nine months pregnant, um, and you can imagine making the trip from Nazareth to Jerusalem. Nazareth was to the north, is to the north of Jerusalem, or to Bethlehem, excuse me. And you're talking, it was probably a 90-ish mile trip that was not on paved roads, that was not just a straight shot, that was not just flat ground. And you could even surmise potentially that they may not have had a donkey potentially to ride on, uh, or a camel or anything. They were poor, remember. So... You can imagine that trek down to Bethlehem um, would not have been an easy uh, trip. Uh, and so it's remarkable. I mean, nine months pregnant, she makes this trip. Um, did it induce? You know, there's some thought actually that the look, the, what the commentators do hit on is that aspect. You know, is that what ultimately led to her? Giving birth, maybe, maybe those were, that was the means the Lord used for her to be ready then. But um, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, uh, what we see is we read in verses six through seven. It says, "While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn." What we find when we read the scriptural account of the birth of Christ and even the events leading up to the birth of Christ, to me what it testifies is truly this is the word of God. If this was the word of man, we have seen how they have taken this story and dramatized it. They take it and try to make all these, you know, grand claims and, right? The narrative of the birth of Christ, as we've read through it, hopefully you see it is very simplistic very matter of fact there's not a lot added to it in that sense as man is known to do when it comes to storytelling um and so we certainly see 
that to me this just testifies. And so what we see is that the fullness of time had come, whether it was because of the trip and right, but it had arrived. That is what uh, Paul talks about in Galatians four four. When the fullness of time had come, Christ was born. Now, when was he born? Summer? No, actually, a lot of um, you would think so because the shepherds were out tending their flock. However, they think that a lot of the consensus generally is centered around midwinter. Um, they weren't too far out. I remember being in Israel when we went and at the Bethlehem overlook where the shepherds would have been and seeing Bethlehem in the background. And But there's a very real chance that it could have been a mild winter. Um, there's many ways in which they could have been out and about um, and and so forth. It doesn't necessarily mean it had to have been the summer. Um and, and whatnot. Um, but along those lines, uh, from a timing perspective, the early church kind of placed it on December 25th. That was like, you know, early on. Um, and that's kind of the tradition that's been held to. Uh, but they generally, you know, the idea is midwinter, um, whatever time frame that is. Don't go home and try to calc out midwinter. Um, but that's just the general idea. From a timing perspective, we certainly um, have. Was he born z- year zero? No. No, right? Um, we certainly have the whole of our society built around really the coming of Christ with BC and AD and so forth. But we have some markers here between <clears throat> Caesar Augustus, uh, Quirinius, and certainly uh, the ruling of Herod the Great at the time. Um, so based on all of that, um, a lot of like the general consensus is that it would have been around five BC, um, five to four, depending upon the timing of the, you know, switching over there. Um, that's the date. Now, what we are told here is very simply the time came for her to give birth. Uh, she gave birth and then he was laid uh, in a manger, which is just quite simply like a feeding trough for animals, which it's just remarkable. We saw that he came to a virgin in Nazareth, which is kind of a throwaway city, if you will. And now you see even in his coming, it is not in royal palaces. It is not in royal robes. It is not with pomp and circumstance. But we see is his humility in his coming, even to where he is laid in a feeding trough. Um, just keep your mind scripture-based when you recount the story of the coming of Christ. There is no harsh innkeeper not allowing them entry. Um, there's no, um, you know, idea that they searched all over the place and they came to the very last place. And, However, it would make sense, though, that there would have been some difficulty, right? Because there was a census that had gone out. And you can imagine there is a plethora of people in the city. Um, so however that breaks down, what we see is Scripture doesn't allude to all of the details so we have to be careful when we read certain books that want to say, oh, like they searched and searched and then it was here and the guy said, no, don't come in and you can have, you know. Like, what we know is that she gave birth and the birth of Christ, um, you know, in this birth, we have one who came um, in the most humble meekness of ways. It wasn't uh, to, in many ways to be made much of. Um, you know, just I'm, I'm sure we've all heard these types of thoughts, but like here Christ is born, being held by his mother, right? While at the same time being the one that is sustaining her. 
he's receiving from her sustenance while at the same time sustaining her and upholding all of the universe. Um, what did you say in the song, right? Who would have thought that we could hold God in our hands? I mean, the fact that he came as a child, he grew in wisdom. He, you know, he wasn't, you know, like Adam, just an adult right out of the gate. I mean, there was much that he learned, much that he studied. And, um, you know, this is, this is the incarnation narrative. Our Lord uh, coming and breaking into time, taking on human flesh um, in order to save us from our sins. So... Any comments, any additions to that? Any other meditations um, that you've thought about as we approach Christmas? Because this is the key, right? We're going to celebrate in a couple days, you know, the birth of Christ. And, you know, like I said, when I first started, at least this part of the Sunday schools was not to get caught up in the worldly line of thought. I'm sure there's all gifts under our trees and all things that we're going to enjoy uh, but we must not lose sight. I know anybody that has kids, generally their first thing is is they're up before the sun and they are like, let's go open the gifts. Um, I would encourage you to read through even the whole of the narrative. I mean, if you read the whole of the narrative, I mean, you're talking 15, 20 minutes, talk about it. Uh, get our minds in the right frame of mind of truly the gift that was given in the Son of God. So let's go worship.